All right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 today. So jumping from our Old Testament uh, prophetic passages from the last couple weeks up to the New Testament as we get closer to Christmas, this fourth week of Advent. So I'll invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Um, You can also see this passage in your bulletin. And you can also remember it because it's already been read for us. So we're going to read it again. And this is Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1 and going to verse 12. I'll read it and pray. And then we'll take a look at some of the things that Matthew talks about here. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we come to the place this morning of reading your word once again and coming before you in prayer, we acknowledge our weakness in understanding what you have spoken to us. We acknowledge our deep need is to hear from you. We acknowledge that we are distracted by many things and Maybe not so much any other time of the year as now as we approach Christmas and are only days away. And family gatherings are happening, they're on our minds, and meals and last-minute Christmas presents and all sorts of things flood our minds and struggle to take our thoughts and focus away from you. So I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would meet us now, that you would illuminate the text to our hearts to teach us something about Jesus this morning that would cause us to worship him as these wise men did. Grant your spirit now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Ponce de Leon. The first Spanish conquistador. He traveled alongside a guy named Christopher Columbus. You might have heard of him. He was the first governor of Puerto Rico. He was the first to explore and name Florida and several other important locations within it. He nearly wiped out the entire native population by killing them, enslaving them, or introducing new diseases. Then at the age of 61, 30 years after beginning his career of exploration, he died during the second expedition to a poisonous arrow fired during a skirmish with two Native American tribes joined together to push back his expansion of a colony in Florida. For all of this, 
What is he most popularly known for, Ponce de Leon? He's most popular. Who said it? Somebody said it. Yeah, searching for the fountain of the youth, which was not actually mentioned in that list because he never found it. <laughs> in fact, if you Google the search for the fountain of, the youth, of youth, Ponce de Leon is the first guy that comes up. Most likely, he didn't even believe in the fountain of youth, though. He went at the behest of his supporters and influencers, and of course, he, among many other explorers, never found it. It may have been a myth developed by natives to give the conquistadors something else to do besides enslave and murder their people. Ponce, like all the conquistadors who would come after him, had great dreams of making something incredible out of their lives. And though for reasons frowned upon by today's society, he did. He was a significant figure in history. The wise men of this passage were not conquistadors, though Herod may have wondered if they were attacking his kingship. They did, not travel, they did not travel for selfish gain, whereas Ponce de Leon, as many of the other 15th and 16th century explorers and conquistadors, ventured with a proclaimed motivation of three things, God, gold, and, anybody know the third? Glory, right? Good history class going on here, right? However, these wise men came not to seek those things, but to seek the Christ, to submit to the Christ, and bring sacrifice to the Christ. We can learn a lot about Ponce de Leon, though he is mostly associated with the myth of the fountain of youth. Yet there isn't much to know about these guys that we just read about in Matthew chapter 2. Their story has been faithfully told for 2,000 years. We don't know their names, but even millions of non-believers since their time know what they were about. Jesus. So I have three goals today. I have hopes that I will show three worship words from this passage being search, submit, and sacrifice. And that's printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along with that outline. So firstly, regarding searching, Jesus Christ will be found by those who diligently search for him, whoever they are and wherever they come from, because God is drawing people to him. Secondly, Jesus Christ is the king of all kings, and we ought to embrace the joy of submitting to him over any other authority, even against opposition. Lastly, sacrifice. Jesus Christ came to be a sacrifice for us, and we are called to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to him who is worthy through sharing the gospel. So though our human nature fights against it, God is drawing all kinds of people from all kinds of places to his son even to today. We may find that this Christmas season we have let tradition and festivity rise higher than their purpose and thus find it hard to search, submit, and sacrifice to Christ. We may find that like Ponce de Leon or Herod, our goals just don't line up with what God has to offer for us in the gospel. The solution is not to seek satisfaction elsewhere, but to see that what Christ offers us is the true need and true desire of all of our hearts to be reunited with God and embrace what we were made to do, which is worship. And that's what these wise men did. This was their goal. So firstly, their search. First thing we learn about the wise men this morning is that not from around here. We read that they came from the east. And there are, of course, multiple possibilities for where they may have come from. 
it may have been Persia or Babylon, as it is believed by many scholars, that these wise men were practicers of the ancient religion Zoroastrianism. There's a word that I had to practice a handful of times this past week. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it involves heavily the study of the stars and the cosmos. So their mentioning of following his star would be consistent here. They may have had a hint from Balaam's oracle all the way back in Numbers 24, verses 15 through 19, which interestingly speaks of a star coming from Jacob, rising up and taking dominion. So read that with me, please. He took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, this is Balaam speaking, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemy, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities." This may have been one of the key passages that led them to realize that this star had special significance. Seems that the Lord used this star because they were already deep in their cosmic study and constantly looking to the stars for divine revelation. Ultimately, it's a mystery that they devoted so much time, effort, and obviously money in order to come worship the king of the Jews. Matthew sure doesn't seem to know or at least not think it's important. These are some pretty impressive guys and yet we don't read anything else about them in the rest of Scripture. There's been a lot of research done to try to discover more about these guys, who they were and what they were about, but the Bible is clearly more concerned with showing them to be worshipers of the Messiah, of the King of the Jews, of Jesus Christ. Much like our messenger from last week in Isaiah 52, 7, if you remember, with him we were more concerned with the message that he carried and with these wise men, we are more fascinated by whom they are seeking, the king of the Jews. This king whom they would ultimately find in worship was supremely worthy of all of their efforts. And this when Christ was only a baby. He hadn't yet done anything to show his authority to the, authority to the world. He had simply arrived. And here's a great concept for us to grab onto this Christmas season. Before Jesus even makes a move, his presence has already changed everything. This is the one the wise men were searching for. You probably have people in your life that simply by showing up, they make all the difference. Before a word is spoken, the tone of the room has already changed. So it is in an infinitely larger sense with Jesus. So John 1.14 says, the word became flesh. That word, word, is logos. It's referring to Jesus being the word of God and being one with God, um, being God himself. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus shows up and glory is present. This is the one the wise men were seeking. He who would change everything, who would shape the rest of their lives, and they had to search for him. Before you look to Christ to do something for you, or around you, or in some situation, be sure that you seek him out in this way. 
to worship him. So often we run to prayer, ready to unload all our concerns, and we are indeed encouraged to cast all of our cares on him. But stop and consider who it is you are running to. God made flesh. Search for him. Rest in him. Delight in him. Be with him. And like the song says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. How do you respond today at the thought of God's son, his only son, whom he loves, becoming a small baby and being given to you? Secondly, this passage shows us that we ought to submit to this king of kings. Herod the Great, as he is remembered historically, has much more in common with a guy like Ponce de Leon than with the wise men, or of course the rightful king of the Jews for that matter. Herod was not born king of the Jews, but appointed by the Roman Senate at the time. He was only Jewish by the conversion of his father and would have been hated right off the bat because of his Edomite heritage. So there's two strikes right there in the eyes of the modern day Jew. Not only are you not in the line of David, the king that we've been hoping for, the king we've been promised, not only are you far from him, you aren't even actually Jewish. You're an Edomite, not a descendant of Jacob, but of his brother Esau the hated brother. Additionally, he was appointed by the Roman government, whom we hate. So walking into Herod's throne room and looking for the one who was, as they said, born king of the Jews, would have been a direct statement of contrast between Jesus and Herod. Herod's jealousy would have been kindled early as the wise men entered Jerusalem with their caravan of servants and their treasures. They were coming to see him, but only to find out from him the status of the true king of the Jews. So just imagine for a second, Herod sitting in his throne room, waiting for these guys to finally come in and see him. Of course they want to see me. I'm the king of the Jews. I'm the most important person here. And what do they ask him? Where's the king of the Jews? He's like, you're looking at him. No, they were looking for the one who was born king of the Jews, the rightful heir to the throne of David. Herod, Matthew says, was troubled when he heard for whom they were looking. Not only him, but all Jerusalem. Herod was an evil man, murdering sons, wives, other officials, anyone who would cause him concern about the loss of his throne. He was not a merciful ruler. If people wanted to be on his good side, they needed to show absolute loyalty and avoid anything that would upset him in the slightest. A very fascinating thing, if you want to, maybe if you just have trouble sleeping or if you're actually interested in historical things like this, take a look at Herod and look at some of the things that he did. He was a terrible, terrible guy. But the wise men. The wise men submit to Christ over Herod in the end of the passage that we read. When they obey the message of the dream given them by God, not to return to Herod, but to protect the location of the Christ from his murderous intention. Their submission to Christ over Herod, though, begins when they come to Herod and declare that who they are actually looking for was the one who was born king of the Jews. They submit not to the one appointed by appointed king by the Roman government, but to the lowly, humble baby born in, into the lower class, yet appointed by God himself to be king. Not only king of the Jews, but in their declaration of intent to worship, we see these wise men understand him to be the king of all kings. The concept of worshiping a king that we see in verse 2 and verse 8 
could simply refer to paying homage to a dignitary. But in three other places later on in the book of Matthew, he's going to use the same word of worship explicitly related to Christ's divinity. So we can't take this passage and assume that Matthew is saying, oh, worship, they're just going to go respect him. No, they knew something about him. He was the king of kings, and he deserved worship as God on earth. Matthew wants him to be known, not as one who is a simple human creature, but the only son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, long before the Nicene Creed even wrote those words. The wise men knew him for who he was. Herod knew him for who he was. His sheep know his voice. Demons believe God is God, but they tremble. There's no neutral ground with Jesus. Either we are the sheep of his pasture, submitting to him as the only Lord, or we do not submit to him, but to our own wills, even if we know that he is who he says he is. Since the fall, all humanity has had this problem of seeking self-rule, submitting only to self and my own desires. God calls us in Christ to submit to his good rule and shows us here in verse 10 that the search for him is one that involves joy. And the payoff of finding Christ, though he is not hidden from us, is not like the holiday blues after a month-long anticipation of Christmas. It is the amplification of that satisfaction beyond what we thought we sought when we looked for him. Now you may very well say, I profess his rule in my life, but I so often struggle with submission to his will. And this is the plight of every born-again Christian. We see it way back here in, oh, ha, I forgot that I put that up there. That always seems to happen. Anyway, there's the Nicene Creed. We see this, this struggle, though, in the Christian's life in Romans chapter 7. This is one of my favorite passages because at a time where I was struggling to know whether I truly knew Christ or not, I looked at Paul and I saw basically what was going on in my heart right on the, word, right on the pages of Scripture going on in Paul's heart. So Paul says this, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I think every Christian should be able to resonate with Paul's heart in this passage. And if you read the rest of chapter 7, there's even more to relate to there as well. You can't carry out this kind of submission we are talking about. You can't do it. But the wise men couldn't do it either. It has to be a work of God on the human heart to create this kind of submission. Remember what St. Augustine prayed, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. If you struggle with looking at what you're called to be and what you're called to do, be reminded of this prayer. Again, he said, Lord, command what you will. You are God. You are in charge. I am not in charge. You are the sovereign of the universe. Command whatever you will. But I declare this to my own heart, that unless he provides what he commands, I cannot obey. If there are things in life that are hard to hand over in submission to Christ, saturate your life in the gospel. Because that's what made Augustine pray the way he did. 
God demands perfection. He demands obedience to his law. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is what? Through whom? It's a good thing that we need, that we cannot make, make happen on our own, and it's given through the best means possible. In fact, the only means possible, but still the best, the greatest thing. There's nothing that God has withheld from you. He's given you his only son. In one sense, though we are called to ask and to pray and to look to him for all of our needs, in one sense, though, what more could he give? What parent among you would give your child for a friend, for a close relative, for somebody who did something great for you? But God shows his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Make your requests known to God. He cares for you. But when you look to what he is asking of you in your life and you realize I don't measure up to what Christ deserves. Know that he has provided in Christ everything that you need for life and godliness, no matter what's going on. So in every trial, God throws to you an opportunity to fight against the sinful tendencies and perspectives that we all have deep in our hearts and receive the joy of submitting more fully to him. It may sometimes take us stopping for a moment in the midst of our worries and even perhaps telling someone else, I have to submit this to Christ. I have to trust him fully. I have to patiently wait for his salvation. That's the purpose for why I am where I am. You know, a lot of times we face a lot of trials by ourselves. And though, yes, the Lord has given us his word, and it's the great authority. It is the greatest authority ever. I mean, it's, it's God's word spoken to us, and it carries power and authority for us. He's also given us prayer to be able to communicate with him. To, I read a great quote this morning, um, and it kind of humbled me a little bit because I, I've often talked about how you know, the Bible is primary and, and prayer is secondary. Prayer is our response to God. Um, so I read this quote this morning. Spurgeon said that he's been asked, what's more important, reading the Bible or praying? And he said, what's more important, breathing in or breathing out? The Bible's God's word spoken and given to you. Prayer is your opportunity to, in light of what he said, respond to him. It's necessary. But this third thing, this idea of fellowship, one that we often neglect when it comes to our own spiritual growth. Oftentimes, the only thing we utilize other people in the faith for is for a model to either bolster up our own pride or to crush us in thinking we don't even measure up to the people around us. That's often the only thing we do with other people in church, in our hearts. But God has given the church to us to walk together, to bear burdens with one another. And so I would encourage you, if you're in a moment of trial, if there's something on your heart that weighs heavy, share it with somebody else. And when I, I don't just mean share it like tell someone and then walk away and hope that you feel better. Share it with someone else, meaning go to someone that you know will say, I'll carry this with you. Let's go. It's a perfect spot for another Lord of the Rings reference, you guys. I know I've been keeping them back. But in the Fellowship of the Ring, when Frodo stands up and says, I'll take the ring to Mordor, they don't say, 
Good for you, Frodo. See you later. Hope you come back. One by one, all of his friends stand up and say, I'll go with you. And then the title of the book and the title of the movie then comes out of that. It's the Fellowship of the Ring. You're welcome. Utilize the means of grace that God's provided to you. The word, prayer, and the fellowship with other believers. And you need those three things because you have to remember the devil, the world, and the flesh are our enemies ever-present, ever-threatening to lead us away from Christ. The Holy Spirit, though, is in us and works through the word. He works through prayer, and he works through the fellowship of other believers to grow us in submitting to Christ. Lastly, regarding sacrifice. At last, the wise men would arrive at the location of the Messiah. And here's that verse that ruins all of your nativity sets at home. Matthew writes, going into the house, they saw the child. (laughs) Nope, they didn't make it to the manger. The word for child may be a further indication of Christ's age at the time because of Luke's word choice translated baby in his telling of the shepherds meeting Jesus. They come to the house, and they come to the goal of their long journey. Notice they saw the child, and they fell down and worshipped him. A child. The one they had been seeking. The one they submitted their time, they submitted their talent, they submitted their treasure to. They submitted their time by making this journey that could have been a 40-day journey on camel or maybe walking. They submitted their talent by studying, researching, trying to figure out who, what, where, and when. How can we meet the Messiah, the King of the Jews, this God-made flesh? And they submitted their treasures, which we'll see that in a moment when they present their gifts. These treasures were not stocking stuffers. They were costly and radiant gifts. The Gettys, Keith and Kristen, have written a marvelous song called Joy Has Dawned, in which they write, Gifts of men from distant lands prophesy the story. Gold, a king is born today. Incense, God is with us. Myrrh, his death will make a way, and by his blood, he'll win us. As you consider the sacrifice of the wise men, we have to consider our own sacrifice to Christ as well. So look no further than Romans 12, verse 1. And this is chapter 12, so there's 11 chapters ahead of this where Paul lays out the gospel in probably the most beautiful way in all of Scripture. And so he says, after all of this, 11 whole chapters, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. These wise men give a picture of what we are called to offer in light of the mercies of God. We are to pursue holiness, acceptability before God through Christ, and offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. All this being our own spiritual worship. The wise men brought their costly gifts over long distances. We are called to be the body of Christ here on earth, venturing into all the world to make disciples. Offer the Lord your life as a sacrifice of worship. Build the thesis of your life around his global mission for his glory and the salvation of the lost. 
This idea in Romans 12 of offering your bodies should remind you of when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. And he answered, to love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's everything, you guys. That's all of who you are everything of who you are, your affections, your ability to think, what you can do with your hands, the physical service that you can provide for other people and, and the places you can go to share Christ with them. We're meant to offer those things to him because Christ's body was broken and crushed for us. Speaking of sacrifice again, consider 2 Samuel 24, 24 with me. This is the very end of the book of 2 Samuel. David is commanded to make a sacrifice after sinfully calling for a census, which is kind of another funny connection to today's passage and you know, our, our theme of Christmas. When he's informed where he must take the offering, make the offering rather, he goes to the owner of the land and he offers payment for the land to make the sacrifice. The owner, of course, refuses, rather wishing to give it to David. David, though, insists on payment, saying this great thing to this guy, Arauna. I should have practiced that one. I did not, obviously. So the king, David, said, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Little Christmas gift tip, husbands particularly, if your wife opens up the Christmas present that you provided for them and she says she loves it and you say, that's great, I got it for a great deal or I didn't have to spend anything on it, then you've just ruined the whole gift, haven't you? Didn't mean anything for me to get it for you. It was no problem at all. Definitely, you're there for a while. And truly, you know, any gift, I mean, you know this, we just came out of a season of life of moving, and, and we could even sense it in our, own, in our own hearts as we're trying to get rid of stuff. We said, wouldn't you like this chair? I'd really love to give you this chair. Well, the truth is, is I'm not giving you a gift. I'm trying to get rid of something, right? That is no sacrifice. A sacrifice costs something. Now, you may say, and for some of us, it may be very true that coming to church on Sunday morning is an actual sacrifice. We may have to call off work. We may have to miss out on something else going on. It may be a physical sacrifice for us. It might be difficult for us to arrive here. But for a lot of us to say, yeah, to go to church on Sunday, I like church. Church is fun. I like to see those people. There's things that I like. I like the music. I like this. I like that. This may not be the moment of the week that God is calling you to sacrifice your time, your talent, your treasure. There may be something else. Most likely, it will be a sacrifice that costs you something. Because, in fact, no sacrifice is truly free. If there's no cost associated, a cost associated with it, it's no good. David says, it must cost me something of my time, my talent, or my treasure. In the story, God responds to David's offering by averting the plague that threatened the land. No sacrifice, get this, no sacrifice that we are called to offer will be unmet with God's response of grace in your life. There were a lot of double negatives in that sentence I just realized that I should have realized earlier. Here's what I mean by that. When you offer a sacrifice to God, 
God pours his grace out on it. Every time. You may not see it. It may simply be that his purpose is to create a heart of worship in you. And you may be on a long journey with that. Such that the sacrifice made doesn't respond with immediate results. But God does not overlook any sacrifice that you offer in the name of Christ. So, Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle says this regarding the wise men and their worshiping Jesus after seeing him. They, they simply laid eyes on him and had to worship him. They were compelled. So Ryle says this, they saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no teaching to persuade them. They beheld no signs of divinity and greatness to overawe them. They saw nothing but a newborn infant, or perhaps a little bit older of a child, helpless and weak and needing a mother's care like any one of ourselves. And yet when they saw that infant, they saw the divine savior of the world. If you're not compelled to offer a sacrifice to Christ, you need only to see him for who he truly is this morning. By going another way back to the east, the wise men risked the wrath of Herod. He requested that they return with the location of the child, and they chose to obey God rather than man, further upsetting the already paranoid King Herod. Herod's anger was historically only ever satiated by blood, as we see in chapter 2, verse 16, coming up, when he commands to have all the boys in Bethlehem, two years old or younger, slaughtered. It's a terrible thing, awful thing. Could Herod have sent out soldiers to find the wise men and bring his wrath upon them? That was a real threat. We don't know what happened to these guys afterwards. This is the end of their story. But when they heard and they, they heard this dream, apparently all of them had it or, or one of them convinced the other guys that it was real. But when they got the message, they said, we can't go back to Herod. He's going to try to kill the child. They obeyed God rather than man. And yet, God isn't afraid of Herod. Neither is Jesus. He came to die, but not yet. He came to be killed unjustly by those who hate him, but not yet. It would not be the whim of a sinful human that puts Jesus on the cross, but the divine plan of a sovereign God. It's pretty incredible. Look at verse 9 again. It says, After listening to the king... The star went before them. Talking to Herod was the prompting for the supernatural star to go before and lead them once again. Do you remember the star stopped before then? It just stopped and they needed direction, so they went to Herod. And then as soon as they're done with Herod, the star starts moving again. I mean, there's nothing in here that should make you think God said, oh, I forgot about Herod. He's a pretty mean guy. I should be careful around him. He's not afraid of him at all. In fact, he wants Herod to know who these wise men are after. I think that's awesome. Herod, like Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar, all the other great villains of the Bible, their plans not only do nothing to stop God's plan, but were actually used by him to complete God's plan. That is incredible. It would be one thing for God to just zap and kill Herod on the spot, which he actually does to Herod's grandson, Agrippa I. That's in Acts 12, 23. 
We could see God's superiority over the plans of human rulers if he did something like that. But as it is, God's use of the plan of his enemies shows his superiority through the plans of his enemies. Nothing can be devised in the mind of a human to overthrow what God has intended to do. In fact, God wants you to know that so much that he works through those wicked plans. Many of us probably have testimonies that correspond with that, right? Maybe we have some kind of testimony that involves us going some route opposite what God might have wished for us, and yet it was that route that he used to bring us to himself. So, the wise men chose to keep the child's location from Herod. They risked their safety in order to submit to the one they knew to be the king of kings. It's an incredible story that Matthew points out in the beginning of the gospel here. Matthew is the most Jewish-oriented gospel writer, and in that he brings the story up so early on, he's pointing to the fact that the gospel will go to all the world. This text prepares us for Jesus' ministry to a handful of Gentiles. Matthew 8, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Anybody know who he's talking about here? Yeah, the Roman centurion, who did what? Came to Jesus or sent a servant. We can talk about what, you know, which one actually happened in this instance if you want to later. But he, he came and he said to Jesus, Look, my servant is sick. He needs healed. And Jesus says, Sure, I can, I can do that, no problem, let's go. And he says, stop. I'm not even worthy for you to set foot under my roof. All you have to do is say the word and I know my servant will be healed. And so Jesus says this, not even in all of Israel and the people who should have this kind of faith, I haven't found such great faith as I have with this guy who recognizes authority, who recognizes me for who I am. One of the biggest problems that people have in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that they don't get who Jesus is. Even the disciples, his closest friends, think about the storm. And when the storm is, when Jesus calms the storm, they sit there and they're in awe and they say, who is this guy? Well, don't you know by now? You've been hanging out with him for quite a while. He's not, a, he's not your average bear. Very different. Next, uh, Matthew chapter 15, verse 28. Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Okay, so tougher question. Where did this lady come from? Yeah, she was the the Canaanite or the Syrophoenician, right? So this this Canaanite woman um, runs. She's following Jesus, and the disciples are getting annoyed with her. And they're like, can you just tell her to leave? She keeps calling out for you. You're too busy for this Canaanite dog. She's not important. And so Jesus finally turns to her and says, it's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. And she says, even the what fall from the table? The crumbs fall from the table and even the dogs can can chew up those little crumbs from the table if you just did one little thing if you even just said it i know my daughter would be healed and he says you have great faith because you again understand who jesus is 
These are two Gentile folks, you guys. These are two who have no business knowing who Jesus really is in the eyes of the Jews. And yet they knew, these are, these are the only folks in the Bible that Jesus commends their faith. He looks to his disciples all the time and he's like, you of little faith, where is your faith? If you only had faith the size of a mustard seed, come on. And yet to these folks, he says, you have great faith. Matthew has an intention to focus on the fact that God is calling people from all over the world. His mission is global. And so we here today are a part of it because of this. His plan of redemption is limited to no people group. It's really even all the way down to Matthew 20, 18, 18 through 20, the most famous verse in the, in the book, I'm sure, is the bookend of the gospel and is the light of all this Gentile worshiping foreshadowing going on to show that the gospel focus is going to be to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, discipling them, making them worshipers of the Christ. Any who believe may search for the Christ and find him. Any who believe will be called to submit to the greatest king of all kings and to respond to his great sacrifice by offering their lives to him. The joy of knowing Christ is to be offered all across the world. Remember that all Jerusalem was troubled at hearing about the heir to the throne. It may have been out of fear for what Herod might have done in response, but at the root, their issue was a problem with faith in God's promises. This ought to have been a great reason for the whole city to follow the wise men, to see and worship this one who was born king of the kings, but apparently nobody goes with them. Through the whole Bible, God's people reject his appointed means of salvation. In John 1.11, we read, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. One of the saddest verses in the Bible. He came to his own, people who should know who he is, and they didn't even receive him. He was rejected by his people as the savior he was sent to be. And this problem of unbelief and lack of missional living in God's people isn't exclusive to their culture. In his book, When I Don't Desire God, John Piper wrote this up here, familiarity breeds contempt. Surely redemption through Jesus Christ means we will be freed from this proverb someday. Maybe you've heard that one, maybe not. Um, this idea of familiarity breeding contempt. But the idea of familiarity refers to when we believe we have attained some status or received an achievement with Christ. And so we grow complacent or apathetic or not caring. And our hearts don't break for the lost. Our thoughts center on our own lives and our own issues. And our passion for the glory of God diminishes. Why didn't his own receive him in John 1.11? Because they didn't want him. They wanted something else. The wise men made a combined effort to find the Christ and to submit to him above all else. And if we follow their example of seeking, submitting, and sacrificing to this great king of the Jews, it's clear that God will light a fire in our hearts that more people may come to know him, that Christ would receive the glory that is due his name. When we see him for who he is, when we are redeemed from our sinful mindset of making too little of Jesus or being too familiar with him, it will no longer breed content. Rather, a deeper knowing of him will breed passion and zeal to know him even more. Recognize whether or not you have a tendency to complacency like this. And remember Psalm 34.1 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Jesus overcomes our desire for self-rule by displaying his kindness at the cross, his greatness in the resurrection. We live with the power of God in us to walk in obedience to him in all areas of life. Not perfectly, but as we submit more and more to the Spirit, he works more and more powerfully in us. In order to search him out, in order to know him better, to submit to his law, to submit to his ways and his sovereign rule over all things, and to sacrifice the whole of our lives for his cause. 